data is not a perfect representation of reality and it's primarily human made because even data comes from a sensor that collected the data while well, a human being designed the sensor and decided what to collect and what to leave out. So it's really about thinking about data as a human way to record reality. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we interview designers, doctors, architects, and other amazing people. We do this because we want to explore what design is and how we can apply design to our own lives to be healthier, to be more creative. Thank you, everyone who has reached out to me personally with your feedback. I love it. It's helped me out so much and encouraged me. And thanks for telling others about the show. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, leave comments, because doing this actually helps others to find us. Today, I'm so excited. I'm joined by Georgia Lupi. She's an information designer. Her work centers on data humanism. She's a partner at the global design studio, Pentagram. Georgia has won numerous awards, and she was named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. How cool is that? She's the author of two books, Dear Data and Observe, Collect, Draw. Her TED Talk on the humanistic approach to data has gotten over 1 million views. Do yourself a favor and Google Georgia Lupi and you'll find her website that showcases her stunning visual work. I learned so much from talking with Georgia. I think you will too. Let's jump right into our conversation. Georgia Lupi, thanks for joining me on Design Lab. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I have a thousand questions, so let's just jump right into it. Sure. So you are an information designer. What is that? <laughs> I define myself as an information designer, and I think, you know, what I mean with that is um, every day with my team at Pentagram, we design many different ways our clients and their clients access different type of information. So that's the broader definition of, you know, the broad definition of information design, and then Specifically, I do work with data, which are a quantitative type of information. You know, most of the times data that organizations already have, or in, in many occasions also that we design together with our clients. And so really crafting data sets together. And then, you know, we represent this data visually through data visualizations, through interactive experiences, even physical installations in spaces. So again, it's very, very broad in general, but also very specific if you think about it. So data is kind of like your design material. It is. It's, it, it really is. And again, data that are not only numbers, um, but data that are really every time trying to represent real life. So with context, with qualities, with attributes that sometimes we also need to add to an initial data set to really make sure that these numbers represent real life. And this is really also how my approach to data um, kind of like shapes. So you have been uh, visualizing the COVID pandemic through data and there's three projects that I've seen and I'm just fascinated about. So the first project is that you redesigned the PowerPoint data from Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. He had these daily briefings during the springtime when COVID hit New York. What was the inspiration for doing that? Sure. So, well, again, I, I every day work with my team at Pentagram and as much as we were busy with client projects, we all felt that in this moment in time, when we were hit by the pandemic, 
also as information designer and people who have been working with data for the past, I mean, talk about myself, at least a decade, there definitely was something that we could try and do in this moment in which if, if you think about it, as a society, we passed from being like only a few of us interested in data to pretty much everybody checking numbers every day about, of course, like the number of new cases and the death tolls. And uh, we started even to talk about terms such as like flattening the curve in our dinner conversation. So in general, we started from the understanding that many, many people uh, all of a sudden had access to data, but maybe not necessarily everybody knew how to read this data. And uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, as you know, started to do these like daily briefings that got really famous for his PowerPoints that we actually really, really liked and appreciated. Um, as a information designer, one service that we could do is try to contextualize the numbers that he was presenting every day. And I really also want to, you know, um, make the premise that we really loved what he was doing. And we loved the fact that he, he was simple charts, he really presented number of new hospitalizations, number of deaths in a way that could really speak to people. But also there's a lot that it was not said about this data in the sense that, okay, number of new hospitalizations, but how do you relate them to, for example, the patients that then have been discharged or the number of new hospitalizations in comparison to total hospitalizations and trends over time that also can show together the number of tests that have been you know, done on the number of the population, so the percentage of the population. So it was really about uh, designing new charts that could be an addition to what he already was presenting in such a straightforward way to give the people that maybe had more interest to get to the core of, you know, what really the situation was, the tools to compare and to make, I, I'd say, I wouldn't say decision, but, uh, you know, to have a, a deeper understanding of what was going on. I love the graphic that you did on the lives lost during COVID because for me, it just humanized that data because every day we hear about there's a thousand deaths from, from COVID, but you had this chart where each death was represented by a dot and you circled it and it says this equals one death. I felt that you were able to humanize death in your graphics. So yeah, I mean, that particular image when we visualized the number of, of deaths as actual number of dots was an effort to quantify a pretty serious moment that every day with Governor Cuomo's brief was a moment in which he paused and he um, announced the sad um, news that was the number of daily deaths. And in his PowerPoint slides, it was only a number, so say 426. And then also he talked about, you know, the number of life lost today in comparison to yesterday and the day before. But these are really only numbers that people could see as written numbers. And so we thought to really try to quantify that for people. And even the, the way that we visualize the dots are not precise vectorial graphic dots, but are kind of like hand-drawn dots that... I think it also speaks to the unicity of every life that have been lost as opposed to just quantifying the number. So I guess that there's really something that graphic design and design can do to humanize numbers, even really using the tools of graphic design to speak to people more. Thank you for doing that. It's It really, for me, humanize the, the people who, who lost their lives. Can you talk about this other project called Dear New York? I mean, again, that's another self-initiated project. I, I'm Italian. I moved to New York eight years ago. And as many people who moved to New York, I think we moved to New York for the specific 
feeling and energy and vibe and how New York made you feel and the life that, you know, was possible in New York before the pandemic. And so Dear New York is a crowdsource project where we just invite people to show and to share what they missed about New York and what they hope that New York can be better at. And so with two simple prompts, people can respond to Dear New York, I missed you for and Dear New York, I hope you will become. So these two prompts that are very uh, simple, but at the same time for how they're phrased, they kind of like invite you to respond. So when you enter the website that can be experienced through mobile, but also on the web, of course, you'll see a changing background of like blocks of New York, um, photos that have been taken from us uh, in general from our team. And then you have these sticky notes of two different colors and you see all of the people that responded uh, what they missed New York for and with another color, what they hope that New York will become. And then you can add your own. So you can add a message, like a post-it message that you can post on different surfaces of New York because we've been taking photos of sidewalks, of all of the environment that makes New York, New York. And I really loved the contributions. I mean, I feel that people really wanted to, to talk about the thing that they wanted back in the way that they felt and the way that New York made them feel, but also at the same time, you know, how can we build a better New York? And we launched a project in the moment of the reopening. So that was a project that we launched in July. When we started to see that some of the life was coming back and we thought that was really a nice moment to commemorate this moment of lockdown in New York, but also hopes for a positive future. And we really got a lot of participation. So I'm really excited about this tiny project that I think, you know, if only can brighten up a 10 minutes of your life, I think they, you know, they made what they were made for. Thank you for that. And people can still submit. Yes, people can still contribute and participate. And the URL is dear-new-york.com. And it's really nice. You can really go there. And for example, I'm browsing the website right now. And uh, there's really, you know, Dear New York, I missed you for the artistic inspiration I found in every corner. I missed you for the vibrant, never-ending energy. I missed you for the endless journey through the city in search for the perfect coffee spot. And... But also, I hope that you will become a more diverse home for new generations and all generation of New York. And so it's, uh, it's really, really nice even to just go there and browse through the contribution. I want to jump to a different project that you did a few years ago. It's called Bruises, Data <laughs> We Don't See. And it's a health data visualization of Cooper, who was a three-year-old girl with ITP. That's idiopathic thyrocytopenic purpura. It's autoimmune disease that attacks your platelets and results in very easy bruising. Can you describe that project, that visualization, and what inspired you to do that? Sure. So Cooper is the daughter of Kaki King, a dear friend of mine. She's also a great musician, guitar player. And Kaki and I started to collaborate, um, actually <laughs> brought together by John Maeda, I guess. Oh, awesome. So we got to collaborate professionally, but then we became friends immediately. And at some point three years ago, again, Cooper was diagnosed with ITP. And Kaki and her family were really, of course, scared and frightened. And they didn't really know how to, you know, take this news. And so what we did, what I did with her is we started to collect data. And that was for Kaki a way to keep track of everything that was going on with Cooper's health, uh, but also a, a way for her to, to be sane and to know that, you know, this is something that I can 
control. And so for four months, we collected data about, of course, her skin and so the level of her bruises as Kathy observed her, the petechia that are the small dots that, you know, sometimes happened, you know, to show up in her skin, her lab tests, the medication that she was taking, but also how Kaki felt, how stressed she was and um, everything that was going on in their life. And on the one hand, she really used this data, this analog data collection to talk to different doctors every time because she really could build a journey of everything that she was noticing. Even if, again, there were more qualitative observation rather than actual numbers are really, but also at the same time, after these four months of data collection, Kaki felt that there was so much that these data told about the journey of a patient and their family that she wanted to share this data. And because, you know, my way of sharing data is visualization and her way of creating art is music, we built a musicalization and visualization of this month of data collection through a song that she created that was actually built on the timeline of the data. And the visualization that I created that, you know, it's not really the medical type of data visualization that you expect because I really used brushes to paint like the bruises actually that Kaki was observing and different type of, you know, tiny dots to build a petechia. And I think it's really something that can speak to the condition that Cooper was having and also at the same time, hopefully show an emotional way, you know, to read this data. Because again, I asked myself, can a data visualization also communicate empathy and really talk about the story of a patient's life and their family life? And we got really incredible responses to people that might have connected to this data and to, I'm sorry, to this story, much more than just reading a blog post about the journey. So I guess really, this didn't really want to, be any groundbreaking um, news uh, in, in, the, in the medical field, but it was our way to just really communicate a very emotional and intimate journey. It was beautiful. And it really invoked empathy in me for the, the little girl with I ITP. And what I felt that data visualization did was really humanize the patient behind the disease, behind the medical data because the medical data I get is very cold and hard yeah. and it, you don't get that what you, I've heard you say this, this, that soft data of emotion of what the patient is actually experiencing, what the patient's mom is actually experiencing. It was just a beautiful way that you represented that. And I'm curious to know, why do you do all these projects? What fascinates me in general about data is really not the numbers, is the power of abstracting our lives one subject at a time so that we can really all focus on that aspect. And then the power of being a, an incredible materials for visualization and for graphic design. And so this is really the way that I see data in general. It is really my way of seeing the world and my way to expressing myself. And I think that I'm always in the lookout for stories that can make people relate. And this is why I am always eager to start self-initiated projects that can really start from something that happened or a conversation that I had with people or a reflection that with my team we had around, for example, again, the COVID time. And like to tap into the creative aspect of it, I believe that if you feel that you have something to say, if you feel that, you know, there's a project that is burning that you want to um, as a designer, you know, embark in, it's really, really helpful for your practice, even for your professional practice. I've always found that balancing the client's project with projects that start for me 
have always uh, led me to explore more and then eventually potentially to bring in some of the more speculative exploratory aspects into client work. So I think it works really well together. I was inspired by how a lot of these projects that we've been discussing are personal projects, correct? Yeah, they are. And because I, I have all these ideas all the time and in my head of projects I want to take on and probably people are listening have that same inspiration and desire, but I don't know. I just get stuck and I think <laughs> I, that I never end up doing it, but you do it. Like, what is that? How is that process that for me, there's all these roadblocks from taking on these self-initiative creative projects well, believe me, I have so many more ideas that I feel stuck about that I'm always feeling like you feeling like I want to do so much more. I have so many things that I want to do, but then, you know, sometimes I do get stuck as well. I feel in general that collaborations are very, very important for me, at least for any self-initiated project. So, for example, the project that I did with Kaki, it was with her. I had another person that, you know, in any way, kept me accountable, held me accountable. And also with my team. I mean, if I throw an idea out and then, you know, my team knows it. And so, you know, it's really about, okay, now we need to make it. Another thing that I do is setting up some deadlines, some artificial deadlines for myself, which are something about, okay, I'll talk to this journalist to see if they want to publish a project that actually I haven't started yet. <laughs> and then if they say yes, well, of course, then we need to work on it. So I think, you know, they're like these tricks that can help. But again, another thing that I would really say is that, especially during COVID, I feel that many designers have felt the pressure to create, the pressure to feel like right now, this is the moment for me to make the project. And I think that we also need to be very patient with ourselves because again, if you do have something to say and something to work on that is burning, do it. But otherwise, it's fine. We don't need to feel pressured all the time to put out the right self-initiated project that will change our career. I believe that if the ideas happen and you know the ideas will get to you and it's the right moment with the right people you'll know it and you'll do it creating this time constraint which creates this platform to get the project done but then also having the patience to let a project go organically yeah. and and to work with that i i want to oh man there's so, so many questions so there's i want to shift gears and talk about data and health and I'm curious to know, how do you use data in your own life to be healthier? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always a data collector. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that I use data to become healthier. But let's say that if we talk about general mental health, I, I do tend to collect data on topics that I'm interested about. So for example, it passes from uh, understanding how my emotions relate to the context that I'm in into maybe um, understanding why I'm particularly stressed out in a moment in time. And to me, data collection is kind of like a, a way of journaling. It's just my way of journaling. I also collect data about my relationship and how things that happen in my relationship make me feel. But it's much more like a 
an exploratory way for me to tap into things that I'm curious to understand about myself. I started personal data collection on another self-initiator project. It was a collaboration with a London-based designer, Stephanie Kozovic, uh, a project that's called Dear Data. And we did one entire year. Oh, I see you. <laughs> I have the book. I love this book. I've been devouring this book, Dear Data, for the past <laughs> month. So, yes. Yeah. So we call that. Yeah. We started personal data collection there when we explored 52 topics from our envies to our desires to, again, our interaction with our partners to how the sounds of our surrounding made us feel to the weather and the mood. So really 52 protests in a way in form of data to talk to the other person about ourselves. That for us was a way to get to know each other and, you know, for context, we then drew these data weekly on postcards that we would send from London to New York and from New York to London. And it was kind of like a data memoir of one year where we documented ourselves and shared what was going on with the other person. And that was a moment when I really realized the power of, again, abstracting our lives one subject at a time. So I don't know if this is the type of data collection that necessarily makes me healthier. I think it makes me um, connect with myself a little more. It's not for everybody. I'm a little obsessive as a person in general. I don't like apps, those smartphone apps. I you know, don't count calories, the minutes I sleep, my heart rate or blood pressure. And, and I'm curious to know, how do you record all this data? Do you use an app? Do you just yeah. draw or with a pen and paper or... Sure, I don't count my steps or calories or sleep either because I'm much more interested in the data that comes from a question that I have. So something that I really need to explore. And like right now, what I do is I really collect this data in journal on the note app. So really notes taking a note app that is like connected on the cloud on my phone and my computers. And so I just have like my prompts that can be at the end of the day, uh, responding to simple questions. So for example, uh, one thing that I'm trying to do lately is focusing on the positive aspects. And so asking myself, okay, what am I grateful for? What was something happy uh, and positive that happened, you know, today? What is that I'm looking forward to doing tomorrow? So just like focusing on these three questions and then, you know, answering. That's just my way of journaling. It's just a structured way of journaling where you just answer questions that you ask yourself and you do it over time and, the power of that is that you can see trends over time. Things that normally go unseen or overlooked because, again, you don't look so closely. It, this really reminds me of the slow food movement. You are doing like a slow data movement. <laughs> slow data, data, analog data, small yes. data. Because <laughs> data is so fast and so immediate, but you're slowing that down. and. Yes, in a very analog way that really appeals to me. Your book, Dear Data, really inspired me that I can actually collect data in a very analog way to, that to me is a lot more appealing. But I still have this mental roadblock because I'm not artistic and your drawings and Stephanie's drawings in the book are so beautiful. And for people like me who want to record and document, represent our data, how do we do that? Like, how do we overcome this roadblock? Yeah, well, I mean, this is so interesting because to me, and we've seen with many people that learned about the project and wanted to experiment on themselves, and people were definitely not designer or artists or even not data scientists. But I think what's really powerful about data 
is that it's also a, let's say, a design tool that helps you not being afraid of the white page. Because imagine that with data, you always can set up rules for yourself. So it's pretty much a mindset where there's like, if something, then I will draw something. Say if, you know, if I recorded a category of, you know, logs that are about food, that will be yellow. If it's about, I don't know, a credit card transaction that is about something else, it will be blue. If I have uh, recorded that for, say, one hour, that will be one centimeter long. If it is two hours, at least two centimeter long. So it's really about starting to think in terms of rules. And then I feel that data gives you the power even to explore how to be more creative without really having the fear that you need to start the blank page. It's all about setting yourself up with rules. And so, and Stephanie teaches a lot of workshops about that. We've published another book that is kind of like a journal for people to learn how to do it. And so- It's like a companion book for Dear Data to help you get over that blank page that terrifies people like me. I look at that blank page and I just, it prevents me from- putting anything down because I'm like, oh, well, where am I going to start? So right. it's really exactly what it is. And then maybe you just like start with the grid, a grid that is just the counting the number of blocks that you have. And then you start just adding a circle for every time that X, Y, and Z happen. And, you know, the we, we've really seen that even teachers of any grade are using this format to teach their students the worth of data. But even like primary schools and secondary schools, so that's also very, um, very exciting. That's so cool. You know, we're surrounded by so much data. How could just the average person make sense of it all? Do you have any <laughs> advice? Yeah, well, I guess it's always about asking yourself questions when you see this data. So even when you're presented on the New York Times with a chart or when you look at data from COVID, I guess it's really an always understanding that data has been collected somewhere. Somebody collected it. Data is not a perfect representation of reality and it's primarily human made because even data comes from a sensor that collected the data while a human being designed the sensor and decided what to collect and what to leave out. So I guess when you start with this premise, you start to understand that data is pretty much never objective. It's always subject to an interpretation that went into how the people that collected the data collected it. And then you start asking yourself questions about, okay, so what was the context? What are the data that also we don't see here? And again, thinking about COVID, I mean, really, if we think about the number of hospitalizations, just realizing that, yeah, okay, this is a subset of reality. Maybe you'll be interested in understanding also what was going on you know, with another parameter that can be interesting to relate to. And then when you start seeing data this way, you have the possibility to understand how to put it into context and how to interpret it. So it's really about thinking about data as a human way to record reality. I would say that, you know, this is a premise that is okay enough for people to start becoming a bit more data literate, if you will. And at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the most helpful data points was flattening the curve to avoid overwhelming the healthcare system. And that graph was shared by everyone from President Obama to epidemiologists to other people just like sharing that data. And I think that really helped the general public understand why we needed to socially distance and why we needed to quarantine. 
did you always want to do this? Because I know you went to architecture school in Italy. Were you just always obsessed with data and visualizing data? Like, how did you get here? <laughs> I always like to start with an anecdote that is like from my early childhood, where one of the things that I really enjoyed the most doing is spending, it was spending time at my grandmother's little tailor shop so she was a seamstress and really just reorganizing all of her belonging like you know the buttons the threads the ribbons that she had by color by size and you know even like categorizing things already and putting them and laying it out on the table every day in a different way so if you think about it in retrospect this is already kind of like a data mindset about thinking about you know numbers and categories and then organizing them visually then I think, you know, I kind of like forgot about data for my entire uh, late childhood and teenager life. And when I needed to decide what to do for college, I didn't really know that data visualization was a thing back then. And architecture for me was, again, my way to both tap into my need for organization and structure and numbers, but at the same time, the other need that like was expressing things visually which I think you can also say similar things about design because you do work with constraint and you do work with structure and with planning, but also at the same time, there's a visual expression that is what ultimately the final client, the final user is able to get meaning from. And after architecture, I was really also intrigued all the time by, by urban mapping and urbanistic discipline that was part of my study, that if you think about it, it's in and of itself already an information design type of language. And then progressively, I, I got into thinking that, oh yeah, uh, we can visualize not only maps and cartography, but other type of information in these abstract way and then when i learned that data visualization was a thing it just like clicked with me immediately we try to give anyone who's listening a, a takeaway that they could apply to their own life and i love what you said about how you look at recording data from your personal life as a sort of daily journal and because often we think of data as not being personal but you make data very personal and what is your advice to people listening of how they might be able to record uh, a data diary? <laughs> it's really all about asking the right questions. What is that you're interested in knowing about yourself or about a moment of your life better? And ask this question repeatedly and set it up in a way for which is really easy for you to reply. Again, for example, daily gratitude. At the end of the day, every day for one week, just record what are you grateful for, for example, why, and something about how you felt that day. If this is something that you're interested in exploring, which is how to focus more on the positive aspects, or if there's anything else about not understanding how you spend your time, track a little bit more attentively how you do spend your time and how that makes you feel. How, how a workday makes you feel and what about like, you know, really recording the moments during the day that you're actually feeling empowered and energized. So what was that in conjunction with? Was it about a positive interaction that you had with a colleague? Was it about a time that you were taking for yourself? And it sounds very obvious, but you know, when you see it over time, it really jumps at you and then you can start probably acting on it. And how do you do this with like a pen and paper or recording on your smartphone? What are some tools that someone can use to do this? Sure, everything works. Like from really setting up a set of questions on a piece of paper and answering every night to using a note app on your phone. There's some data tracking app. One that I think everybody can try is 
my friend Nicholas Felton app that is called Reporter. And that's very easy. You set up your question and you just get an alert when you need an answer. There's so many. I think it's really about finding the right tool for you to do it. And again, you don't need to be a statistician. You don't need to be a data visualization person to just tap into the world of data if you're interested in. Oh, I enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you, Georgia, for joining us on Design Lab. It was so great talking to you. Me too. It was really lovely to talk to you. And uh, well, you know, I hope we will have many more conversations about healthcare and how to humanize it. That was my conversation with Georgia Lupi. I have followed her work so closely. I was so excited to talk to her. And this section, I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What's going on? What's going on, Rob? We use this time. Why are we using what, what do we do with this time? I think what we try to do is focus on a takeaway for everyone listening. Maybe there's like five or six people listening. My mom doesn't even listen to this podcast, but we really want to give a, a pearl, um, a method, a principle that everyone can apply their own lives to be a little bit healthier, maybe more creative. So that's why that's why we do this. We want to drive home that point. Yeah, uh, I was trying to explain what podcasts are to my parents, and they have no idea. Do they rate our podcast at least? No, no, they, they don't know how to open a podcast app. Unbelievable. Uh, for the two people listening out there, we want to give you a way to become healthier, maybe be a little bit more creative, something that you can apply to your own life. So I was thinking about you, Rob, you have a chronic disease, you have insulin-dependent diabetes, and you're always thinking about data. You get your blood sugar alerts all the time. You have a continuous glucose monitor, why don't I just shut up and w what is your day like living with diabetes? Explain that. Yeah, so I have both an insulin pump, which gives me uh, insulin to supplement what my pancreas no longer makes. And then I also have a continuous glucose monitor, which tells me, I think it's every like 90 seconds, gives me an updated data point of what my blood sugar is right now. So I am constantly creating and managing data just to try to be healthy. Your body is actually being continuously monitored 24 seven. Yeah, yeah. And actually one of the reasons why I bought an, um, an Apple watch, I didn't have an Apple watch before. I didn't think I needed one, but the reason I bought it was so I could look at my wrist and see what my blood sugar was. So what I learned from Georgia is that's all hard data, very quantifiable data, but there are these soft data that's very qualitative that we can actually record and it, it can't be just as valuable as that hard data. And I'm thinking about, you know, how are you feeling throughout the day? Maybe when your blood sugars are high and low, do you ever record that at all? Cause I've been around you when you're a little bit hypoglycemia when your blood sugar's low, you get a little crabby, man. Yeah. That's something that like really just doesn't get talked about much, you know, outside of the, the diabetes community, because that's really one of the worst parts about the disease. Like you get used to sticking yourself if you have to, to test your sugar, you get used to the insulin shots, you get used to it. It's just becomes part of life. But something I'm still not used to is those emotional and ups and downs and the fluctuations in energy. Um, nobody, nobody really talks about that. Nobody really knows about that. You know, my days, every day, I don't know how I'm going to wake up. And a lot of that is because of my, my blood sugar fluctuations and how I, how good I am at controlling them. And, um, you know, that's, you know, probably one of the most important things when it comes to quality of life is, you know, am I exhausted today because I just didn't eat well yesterday and my sugar was high all night? 
or do I have a headache for half the day because my sugar dropped low overnight and I just didn't correct it in time. The the data just tells only so much of the story. Like the numbers only tell like such a small part of the story. Um, and there's so much more to be told that has a much larger impact on my actual life. Do you think you can, would, are you inspired to start recording some of that qualitative data? That's a tough question to ask, right? Because it's really a lot to manage a chronic disease for yourself. And um, I have so much information coming at me. And one of the things I say to to like even my own family, because they forget, I'm like, you realize that if you eat something, you don't have to think about it. You can just eat it. If I put something in my mouth, I basically have to start doing math. Like, oh, okay, when did I last give myself insulin? How many grams of carbs is in this? How am I going to feel 30 minutes from now, an hour from now? It's this complex thing that I'm constantly dealing with. So for me, you know, if I were to think about, all right, what if I need to add a more cognitive load to my day? I'd really have to kind of weigh how beneficial that would be, you know, to, to my life. But one of the, the cool things about data is is when you do start collecting it, you do learn stuff. And sometimes there's a little bit of hump. You just got to get over that hump. And then you're like, you're like, oh, wow, how did I not know this before and actually it might reduce the cognitive load yeah i I think so like what georgia was saying about looking at patterns over time i don't record much data about myself except for working out so i'm very actually meticulous about how much weight i can lift and what my rowing times are so i i i row pretty religiously every day i row 2000 meters i record those times I record, I, as, as you know, I do a lot of Olympic lifting. So I do, mm-hmm. I cycle through deadlifts, cleans, push presses, front squats. And I, and I, yeah, Bob, record, we've all seen your Insta. I, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't publish that on my Insta, <laughs> but so I record all those weights and I look at those patterns over time for my physical health. And it was interesting when uh, the pandemic started to hit Philly, I noticed like my, rowing times got worse and i was thinking do i have covid am i just not getting enough oxygen Mm, to to myself or but i really do think it was just physical and emotional exhaustion i was not sleeping much and and now my times are actually a lot more improved because i've just been sleeping more i love that georgia makes data beautiful because data is often cold and personal and kind of ugly you know it's represented in pie charts and graphs and bar charts, but her data visualizations really invoke empathy. And I think there's so much opportunity there, especially in health and healthcare to do that, of how do we humanize the people behind the disease? Yeah. When it comes to design and healthcare, I think adding that layer of humanity over the data is is so important. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Georgia Lupi. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram. And please rate, subscribe, follow us on whatever platform you use to listen. This helps us out so much. I'm your host, Bon Ku. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by the amazing Emmanuel Houston. See you next week.